idolatry. And the same is true today. You, you may not walk around being possessed by uh, a spirit. I've, I've never encountered that uh, in my own life, but idolatry doesn't have to take that form. Part of what idolatry is about is it's about identity, about meaning, and about worship, about finding our ultimate meaning in something other than the living God. And, and what we find is that when we pursue meaning, when we pursue identity and hope in anything outside of Jesus, what we end up with is not a gracious Lord, but a powerful and ruthless tyrant who can never deliver on its own promises. And so for this young girl, this was freedom. Uh, freedom from this spirit that had possessed her, as well as freedom from her masters who no longer could gain any profit by her. We're not told, but I think it's safe for us to assume that after this happened, the Christians in Philippi probably took this young girl in. I mean, I can't imagine a situation where that didn't happen, where Paul frees her from this spirit, and the Christians must have taken her in uh, to bring her into fellowship with Jesus Christ. But we notice a much different response among her owners. And here we see the confrontation of Jesus with idolatry. Notice what Luke tells us. After Paul cast out this spirit, verse 19, her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Now, part of what Luke is telling us simply is that they, they had some expectation that they would profit from her skills, her gifts. But he uses this word hope, which I think is very deliberate. Part of what Luke is telling us is that they had anchored their hope, not in Jesus, but in money. Some things don't ever change. Their hope, their identity, what they were worshiping was the economic profit that came to them at the exploitation of this young girl. And when the spirit left her, their hope also left them because they had put their hope in the wrong place. This is what happens when idolatry uh, enters into our hearts. We, we place more, we place too much weight on created things, thinking that they can give us meaning, hope, and, and a solid, stable identity. And sometimes the Lord enters into our lives and he causes those created things to crumble underneath us because they were never meant to bear that kind of weight. But we have to see that in the midst of the Lord's work, causing our idols to crumble from underneath us, that part of what he's doing is he's stripping away things that cannot deliver us so that he can give us himself, so that he can provide real hope, true meaning, ultimate identity, not through created things, but through a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. I think it's safe to say that we live in a time that's not very different from the culture and the society that Paul and Silas would have encountered here in Philippi in the first century. Just as an illustration, consider a recent study that came out by uh, the CDC regarding the rate of depression and anxiety among teenage girls today. This report says that 57% of teen girls feel persistently sad and hopeless 
a rate double that of boys. And that this rate of hopelessness, sadness, you might call it anxiety and depression, this is a 60% increase over the last 10 years. Think about that for a second. We're living in a time where more than 50% of teenage girls express hopelessness. And that this is an increase of 60% over the last 10 years. Now, you got there's, there's articles written about this study kind of trying to, everybody's trying to figure out what do we point to? What's the cause of this increase? This is a massive increase. It's, and it's accompanied by uh, suicidal tendencies. And, and um, part of the study said that one third of teenage girls considered killing themselves in 2021. You feel the weight of that burden, and you, like everyone else, you want to ask, what, what, is, what is going on? Uh, many have responded to this study pointing to the devastating impact of social media. I'm not up here to kind of get the, get the bully pulpit against social media, but I think it's worth considering uh, how this kind of new technology. There's no, no coincidence that this is a 60% increase in the last 10 years. Uh, it was just 12 years ago or 13 years ago that we first encountered the front-facing camera on our phone so that we could see ourselves in live action and become consumed with how we look and all of the different technology that's come with that so that we can alter the way we look so that we can try to look perfect, try to, try to find meaning, Try to find hope, try to find identity in something that's not real, in something that cannot deliver on what we hope it uh, promises. But I think there's an underlying issue behind just the device, behind just the medium of social media and, and all that, that comes with that. One writer in World Magazine says it's worth asking the question uh, if what's behind these staggering statistics is not just simply a device, a problem with technology, but the underlying message that's being communicated by all of this, namely the implicit message that all of these things carry, that we can be our own gods, that we are the center of the universe. And you think about how everything is geared towards this, the content of social media, the algorithms that generated, the advertisements, the color schemes, uh, this article says, all personalized to meet our interest. The writer in this article says, we're burdened by responsibilities and roles that are only sufficiently carried by God. And it seems that we, young girls especially, are being crushed by the weight of it. That's what idolatry does, whether it's social media, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's power, whether it's popularity, doesn't matter. Whatever it is that we're anchoring our hope to, if it's not the living God through Jesus Christ, it cannot bear the burden that we place on it. And so it produces things like 50%, 7% of teenage girls feeling sad and hopeless because they're they, not that, we're not beating them up. This is, we should all feel compassion about this because we all, we all do the same thing. We all seek our hope in something outside of the Lord. And it's part of God's grace that he meets us in that moment and he causes 
those things to crumble under a weight that they cannot bear. Now, it may bring us with it. We may crumble too. But the good news is that Jesus confronts our idolatry in order to expose it and free us from it and to bring us into a relationship with himself where there's real hope, where there's real life, where there's a relationship with a real person who's really alive, who knows everything about you. All all the sins that hide in the crevices of our hearts, all the thoughts that consume us that we wish we didn't have, all the ways that we use our words to tear down rather than to build up, all the ways that we run astray, Jesus knows it all. And he doesn't push us away. He doesn't bully us. He doesn't disinvite us to the party and then live stream the party so that we can watch it and see how we're left out. He doesn't do any of that. In love, he gives himself for us at the cross. He takes our sin, our shame upon himself. And he says, I do this in love. I love you. And he welcomes us into fellowship with himself as we see our need for him and trust him. Jesus confronts idolatry, and and he never leaves it alone. The question is, what do we do when it crumbles? Are, Are we like the slave girl who experiences the freedom that Jesus brings? Or are we like the owners of the slave girl who haul Paul and Silas off before the authorities and put them in jail because their money has been threatened? They make up a charge about them being Jews and so forth. That didn't have anything to do with what's going on. They're mad because their money, their idol has been disrupted. But what about us? Are we seeing how Jesus frees us from idolatry and brings us into loving fellowship with himself? This is what he is at work doing. Not only is he at work confronting our idolatry and freeing us from it, but notice in this second snapshot how he gives abundant hope in desperation. As Paul and Silas meet the jailer in Philippi. We love this passage. I love this passage because it's just got such clarity to it. He asks a simple question and he gets a straightforward answer. But notice the context, the situation in which this question comes. This jailer has been given orders. Paul and Silas have been unjustly accused. No due process or anything like that. They're just beaten uh, severely. This was no joke carted into jail, put in the innermost prison, and stocks placed on their feet. And notice how the gospel meets them in their desperate situation and how it meets the jailer. Now, if you catch this, uh, in verse 25, it's midnight, middle of the night, usually not a happy time to be awake. Paul and Silas are there in prison, and what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing hymns of praise to God. They're not getting frustrated at how their plan was disrupted. They're not responding in anger that they somehow did not have cultural victory in Philippi and were being treated unfairly. There's none of that. They humbly trust in the providence of God that the God who called them to this place and gave them good news to proclaim that he is in control even as they are in the pit of this prison. In a moment of despair, they find hope in the gospel, singing and praying. And all the prisoners are around listening to them. But notice the impact on the jailer. There's a great earthquake. 
the foundations of the prison are shaken, and there's an opportunity for all of the prisoners to go. All of their bonds are unfastened. Luke's very specific. They had an opportunity for freedom, and they don't take it. And, and this jailer sees that the doors are open. He doesn't even bother to go in and, and check. He just assumes everybody's taking a hike. Everybody's gone. Why wouldn't they be? He draws his sword because he knew he would be held responsible if any of these prisoners escaped, that he would be put to death. And so this was kind of in that culture. This was the honorable way to deal with the situation. Take out his sword. And take his own life. But notice what happens. You have a pagan prison guard in a moment of despair and what is it that brings life and hope the words of a christian don't harm yourself we're all still here that's all it took that's all it took for this jailer to stop he's in a moment of desperation about to take his own life and it's the gentle straightforward words of a christian who was present paul saying don't harm yourself for we are all here which helps us, I think, to understand this seemingly out-of-the-blue question that the jailer asks. I mean, it just seems so random, doesn't it? The jailer comes in, he grabs his light, he comes into the prison, he sees that Paul and Silas and all the other prisoners are there. My first question would have been, what are y'all doing? Why are y'all still here? Like, what happened? But that's not what he asks. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He must have known why these guys were in prison. He must have known that there was some girl walking around with them saying, they're proclaiming a way of salvation. They serve the most high God. He must have heard them praying. He must have heard them singing. And he must have been completely caught off guard by the fact that they didn't dart as soon as they had a chance. And all he can think to say is, what do I need to do in order to receive this salvation? It's a simple question and the most important question. And Paul gives a simple answer and the most important answer. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And he does. He doesn't get into a theological discourse. Uh, he doesn't ask him about his background. Uh, he doesn't ask him how he came to this point of asking this question or what's his background story. Why is he working for the Roman Empire and being a jailer? He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't say, how bad are your sins? He doesn't say, how good have you been? He says the way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. In that moment of desperation, this jailer finds hope, an abundant hope through the simple, clear message of the gospel, that there's a Savior who gave himself for us at the cross, and who is alive. He didn't stay dead, but he rose again from the dead. And all who believe in him, their sins can be forgiven and they can have abundant, full hope that you can't find anywhere else. And it's an abundant hope, not just the jailer, but his whole household. Luke tells us four times in four verses that the jailer and his household are impacted by the gospel. I, I think he's trying to tell us something I think he's trying to emphasize something by stating it this many times in verse 31, 32, 33, and 34. The jailer and his household, the jailer and his household, the jailer and his household, the jailer and his household. You see, when the gospel comes into one person's life and you have hope for the first time because you've embraced 
Jesus and you've found forgiveness of sins and, and idolatry has crumbled beneath you and you've been given the solid foundation of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the promises of God that never fail, when that kind of hope comes into your life and you've got people around you, you've got a family, uh, a household, he probably had servants under him, God works through that. He works through our families to bring hope, not just to one person, but to everybody in the family. And we know it's not a guarantee just because one person in the family comes to Christ doesn't mean everybody else does. But it is something we ought to expect and look for when one person in a family comes to Jesus, that the rest of the family is impacted by that because it is an abundant hope. question for us today is this. Where is the Lord chipping away at the idols of your heart? What are you anchoring your hope in? And do you see that if it's not in Jesus, the hope of the gospel, that Christ gave himself for you, that whatever you're putting your hope in cannot carry that weight? But if Jesus is chipping away at that weak foundation underneath you, and you feel it starting to waver a little bit, that's the gospel confronting your idolatry, and it's Jesus at work seeking to free you from it. And so if he's doing that, then look to him. Put your faith in the one who never fails, the one who alone is able to give us a hope for all of eternity and the forgiveness of sins. Where is the Lord chipping away at the idolatry of your heart? Look to Jesus in the midst of that. Do you find yourself in a moment of desperation, perhaps like the jailer, wondering if life is even worth living? Find some Christians who can speak words of truth to you, who can give you the good news of the hope of Jesus. There's lots of Christians here. <laughs> Go to the Bible. See what God says, that there's real hope in Jesus Christ for those who are in despair. And if you're a Christian, if you've got this hope, you've got this good news, are there people around you who don't and who are struggling and who are in despair? Maybe part of that 57% of teenage girls, hopeless and sad because they're looking for something in social media that that they can't find or, or whatever the case may be. If, if you have people around you that are in that situation, you have good news. You have good news of hope. And sometimes all it takes is the simple, clear voice of a Christian in that moment of despair saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let us pray.